Good morning, everyone. This week, our nation was rocked when a peaceful protest in Washington, D.C. turned ugly and rioters stormed the Capitol building, intent on disrupting the constitutional process for certifying the results of our recent presidential election. Members of Congress went into lockdown, guns were drawn, chaos reigned, people died, including one police officer who was beaten by a mob and later died of his injuries. It was a shocking and sad display of violence and intimidation that cannot be excused or tolerated if our democracy is going to survive. People on all sides are appalled by what happened and have condemned the thuggery. The whole scene was so troubling because to many it felt like it was an attack on our most important national institutions, the things we count on for our sense of national, I guess, national security. There's nothing more troubling than when our sense of security gets shaken. Nothing more disturbing than when things that we have counted on in the past seem to crack under the strain of the present. And that sets up a, a disturbing question. What if the things we have relied on for our sense of security aren't very secure? What if the things we have relied on for our sense of security aren't very secure? If the things we have relied on in life are exposed for being undependable or untrustworthy, that's when you can feel like you're sort of, you know, standing on the precipice, staring into the dark abyss. That's one reason why I think Jesus frequently challenged people to look at what they were trusting in in life for their sense of security. Remember the parable he told about the wise and foolish builders in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 24? Jesus said this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. If we have placed all our trust in human institutions or political parties or political leaders, if our basic sense of security is rooted in man-made things or money or talent or career, life has this way of smashing those things that have become false idols in our hearts. And the results of that can feel pretty scary. Where do we go for true security, for lasting certainty? Of course, you know I'm going to say Jesus right? I mean, Jesus is the answer to every sermon question. It's kind of like the old story about the Sunday school teacher who was trying to get the children to use their imaginations and asked, you know, what is brown and furry, has a big bushy tail, and stores away nuts? And the kids are just like totally silent, just staring back at the teacher. And then finally, one kid in the back sheepishly raises a hand and says, I know the answer is always Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. If we know that Jesus is the textbook Bible answer to the question about true security, then sometimes our minds just click off and we don't really think hard enough about what that really means. I mean, what does it look like to really experience Jesus as your true security? We're going to need that. We're going to need to know that in the year 2021. Today's story is from Acts chapter 16. And in it, we're going to see how a false sense of security gets exposed in three different ways and how to respond to Christ as the solid foundation for your life. We're moving into the second half of the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul 
kind of starts to take center stage as the one who takes the lead in planting new baby churches all around the eastern region of the Mediterranean Sea. In chapter 16, Paul takes his first steps onto European soil in the Greek city of Philippi. He's traveling with his assistants, Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke, who was the author of the book of Acts. They've already gotten a toehold in the city of Philippi through a wealthy woman named Lydia, who had a successful business trading in purple cloth. And like many, she was already sort of primed by the Holy Spirit, quickly embraced the gospel, and then she and her whole house were baptized. And so while Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke were working with this small nucleus of new believers, this is what happened, starting in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Paul is getting relentlessly heckled. For days, this young woman follows them around, creates quite a stir. It was not the way Paul wanted to get noticed. The text said she was afflicted by an evil spirit. Literally, the Greek word there is python. The evil manifested itself as the mythical snake god worshipped at the temple of Delphi. And this poor slave girl went into a trance and Gullible people paid money to her to hear their fortunes and predict the future or act like a medium to convey clairvoyant messages or interpret events. But the demonic presence in her recognized the spiritual authority of Paul and others and called out, these are servants of the Most High God. That's not a false message. She was spot on with the message. But the way she did it and the uncontrollable compulsion to make a nuisance of herself that brought unwanted attention to this small band of Christ followers who were kind of laboring in hostile territory. The situation is similar to many scenes in Jesus' life where he encountered demon-possessed people who also shouted out his divine credentials many places. Luke 4, there are a number of them, a number of different people who badger Jesus, these people who were possessed by impure spirits, and they all start yelling at Jesus at the top of their lungs. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus isn't having any of it because there's a perversity in the way that they're taunting him with their false praise. So it says in Luke 4, 41, Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. For some reason, the demonic in people is attracted to Jesus, but in an ugly kind of twisted way. Why? Well, where there's light, there's bugs. Where there's light, there's bugs. They are drawn to Jesus like a moth to a light bulb because I think deep inside, these people are actually seeking deliverance from Jesus, from this demonic presence. Deliverance was a significant portion of Jesus's ministry. This is not just an ancient way of understanding epilepsy or mental illness or schizophrenia or something like that. Certainly some people were mislabeled in this way, but the Bible does describe the reality and the influence of evil forces in a person's life. And that's hard for people today to admit that there is real spiritual evil in the world. We 
kind of think everything could be understood through psychological means, but I don't think we can explain away some of the sickest violence of our times without a good theology of evil. There are things that can only be explained by the presence and activity of true evil. There's another team on the field, and we need to be aware of it, uh, aware of its presence. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12 uh, later, he writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the world of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Thankfully, it's not a battle between two equal powers. It's not good battling evil, and we're not sure who's going to win. Good and evil are not equal forces. God is supreme. God allows evil to exist temporarily, but Christ has already won the war, and he will ultimately set all things right when his kingdom comes in its fullness. But until then, we still see the effects of real evil in our world. Amazingly, some people do find a sense of security in divining the future, exploring other portals to the demonic like astrology or horoscopes or palm reading or psychics and the like. I mean, just ask the woman who runs the astrology shop across the street from the church. Many people see that as just mere entertainment, but from a biblical perspective, it is not of God. Reading tea leaves to discern one's future may give people a false sense of security, but it is a lie straight from the evil one, and it must be shunned by all followers of Christ. Now, this young woman didn't choose her situation. She's the victim here. And she's being victimized doubly because she's a slave and then by being treated like this carnival sideshow freak. And Paul casts out this false thing from her life. This false thing is expelled, but her owners don't rejoice in her deliverance. Well, why? Because their security just went up in smoke. She's their meal ticket. They've made their living exploiting her misery. And so in an instant... Their sense of security was taken away for them. What Paul did hit their wallets, and they kind of went nuts. It starts again in verse 19. And when their owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and we are, and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. These men have their own kind of evil in their hearts that allows them not only to exploit this girl, they're sort of like all pimps who only see her as a source of income, not as a real person. To exploit other human beings like that means their hearts are very dark and very far from God. Their lives are controlled by greed. Two things can't occupy the same space at the same time, and they have put themselves, their greed, at the center of their lives. And all of a sudden, it all went up in smoke when Paul simply said in verse 18, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And so they seize Paul and Silas, drag them before the town officials. Timothy and Luke, they get left untouched. And you have to ask why. Well, it's because there's racism at work here. Timothy and Luke both were Greek, full-blooded Greek. Paul and Silas came from Palestine. They looked different. They were different. They were Jews. They were outsiders. The racial overtones here morph into full-blown anti-Semitism. Paul and Silas were easily targeted. There's no investigation, no trial. Paul and Silas are locked up for the night in wooden socks. And then we add another level here. There's an evil system that people trust in. The story continues in verse 22. The crowd joined in the, in the attack against Paul and Silas, 
and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailers were commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. When the slaves' girls' owners saw that their meal ticket was canceled, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the marketplace before the local magistrates. The crowd joined in in attacking them. The local judges stripped off their clothes, off their backs, had them beaten with rods, had them thrown in prison. That's how the justice system works in many parts of the world even now. The evil system says that you're guilty if accused, that you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent or you buy somebody off. Personal evil gets magnified into a system. And here it is the local legal system, but really there's an evil that creeps into all of our larger institutions, an evil that goes far beyond any individual. But there is a sense that evil can be institutionalized, and that's why we can talk about institutional racism. The system itself becomes part of the problem. Political systems, economic systems, legal systems, religious systems, all bureaucracies. I mean, and then you can't really put it, pull, pin it down exactly because it's this tangled, convoluted mess, but the systems themselves become corrupt. I mean, just try to get a refund from your cable company. The systems take on a life of their own and perpetuate a type of evil that is at odds with the will of God. So you've got the slave girl and the slave owners, the crowd and the government officials. That's, that's the second layer. And we're going to see how God deals with them in a second. Verse 25. Uh, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prisons were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The next character in this drama is the jailer. Normally, the jailers were retired Roman soldiers. They were a tough breed. They were used to handling out harsh treatment to the prisoners. Jailers, their, their, their name literally meant rod bearers because of the beatings they handed out on a regular basis. So this is a tough guy. He's a tough guy. He has relied on his strength to get him through. Uh, and so this callous Roman soldier, he's the third one in the story to be confronted by the power of Christ. The slave girl needed deliverance. The slave owners, the townspeople, the judges, they needed a rebuke, and they're going to get that. The guard, he needed an earthquake to crack his tough exterior. God has to deal with people in different ways. So there's this earthquake, either sent by God, <clears throat> excuse me, or it's just really convenient timing. We're not told which, but the earthquake opens all the cells, chains fall off, all the prisoners are going to escape. It's this jailer's worst nightmare because his sense of security is built on his job, his job, and it's just gone down the drain. Roman soldiers, they lived a life of discipline and duty and devotion. They lived by this strict, merciless code, and there was no room for failure. It wasn't just a, you know, a sense of shame about prisoners escaping. Roman law said that if a guard lost a prisoner, the guard would have to serve the prisoner's sentence. There was no room for failure, no mercy in the Roman code that he had devoted himself to. It would now turn on him with all its brutality. So his world is crumbling. The jailer's thoughts turn to suicide, to self-destruction, because his security was 
taken away and his, this dark hollowness you know, just came out. He felt trapped with nowhere to go. I have to say I've talked with a number of people who have felt that same way this year. With the COVID crisis, maybe their jobs changed, their careers ended, their lives changed in some other drastic way. Just this dark cloud had settled over their minds and people wrestle with thoughts of suicide. But with God, what looks like a dead end on the road becomes a bend in the road. There's always another way, always another option, always another way to deal with the pain and to get through the darkness. And if you felt suicidal, please, if you've had thoughts of suicide, please don't keep that to yourself. Contact me or Colleen or Mike or contact a counselor or a therapist or tell a, tell a good friend. Don't keep that to yourself. There's, there's always another way. Let's keep reading in verse uh, 29. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then looked them, uh, brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and then you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house and at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What a great part of the story. Paul and Silas do something completely unexpected. They stay in their cells. They convince the other prisoners not to try to escape. The jailer finds them still sitting there, and they're singing. They're having a hymn sing, praying, praising God. Because they knew that God had not abandoned them. Their security was in Christ, not in their outward circumstances. Their confidence was in Christ. And they knew they were safe because they were squarely in the will of God. And that gave stability and security to them when the world was literally collapsing around them in the earthquake. And as this guard stared into this vast, I think, terrifying emptiness of his own life, Something told them these men had the secret to inner release, to real freedom, to true security. He had to know what it was. He asked the greatest question in the Bible, what must I do to be saved? It took an earthquake to bring him to Jesus. What does it take for God to get through to you? Well, I love this next part. The jailer takes Paul and Silas on a midnight field trip. They go to his house. He walks in the front home, says, honey, I'm home. His wife thinks, you know, what is he doing home so early from work? Throws on a robe, walks into the living room. Yeah, I brought my two of my prisoners home for dinner. Got any of that uh, leftover pot roast? <laughs> you know, the text tells it, that Paul and Silas had been stripped and beaten. So they were standing there half naked, covered with blood, bruises, smelling like the bottom of a dungeon. And he wants her to fix a meal. Guys, talk about putting a strain on the marriage, right? But the whole family comes to Christ that night. Adults and children all baptized right there. There's no river. There's no stream right there in the house. And then another amazing twist. Paul and Silas want to go back to the jail before the shift change at sunrise so the guard doesn't get into any trouble. It's one thing to break out of jail. It's quite another to break back in. But off they go. And here's the final installment of the story. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the orders. Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. 
The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Paul and Silas came out of the prison. They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. While all this has been going on, the town officials decide they want Paul and Silas just to disappear, just get out of town. They think that uh, Paul and Silas would just be glad to leave. But Paul says no. And then he drops a bomb. He says, we are Roman citizens. Paul claims his right as a Roman citizen. Not everyone could. Citizenship was not easy to get, and it was not automatic. To be a Roman citizen was a measure of your prominence, privilege, and prestige. And Paul is pointing out that their rights had been violated, grossly violated, Roman citizens were exempt from any form of degrading physical punishment. So in one short phrase, Paul completely turns the tables on his accusers. Oops, I mean, they realize their mistake, but they're only concerned now with covering their tracks. They have no response of faith, only fear and suspicion. They had trusted in the false power of their office and had the rug completely pulled out from under them. The power of the government was now going to be used against them, but Paul's not done. He demands that the town officials escort him out of town in full view of all. He demands an official apology, I think in order to protect the members of the new church that he's leaving behind. He appoints uh, Dr. Luke, the full-bodied Greek, as the pastor of this little church. And here's one more thing to note. Paul is the very first Christian citizen of the Roman Empire the very first Christian citizen of the Roman Empire, and he uses his rights as a citizen to serve the purposes of the gospel, not the other way around. Christ was always first in his heart, above any loyalty to the government or to any political ideology. Paul never had to be reminded where his true loyalty lie. It was always with the cause of Christ. His citizenship as a Roman was always subservient to his citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. And that is very important. It's a very important distinction that we all need to remember, particularly in today's contentious times. Because some Christians are getting this wrong, and they're drifting towards heresy when it comes to their understanding of what it means to be a Christian citizen. There is a difference between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism. There's a difference between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism. Christian nationalism conflates faith and the love of country. It merges faith and love of country into one thing, one and the same thing, allows no separation between love of God and love of country. And that gets ugly in a hurry. Christian patriotism, on the other hand, keeps a separation between God and country because one's first and foremost important loyalty is always only to Jesus Christ. Followers of Christ have got to have the ability to critique our country through the lens of the gospel and God's kingdom and to call out the falsehoods and the failings of our nation and to support the good things. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He said that straight out to Pontius Pilate. So if you can't find any separation between your faith in Christ and your politics, then you are drifting towards false teaching and potentially heresy. Because what happens is that the politics eventually takes over. And faith in Christ just becomes a means to an end. It becomes subservient to a person's political beliefs, and that is heresy. And that's true on the political left and the political right, because every politician says, God bless America, when it serves their purpose. 
Paul is a good example for us. Paul uses his rights as a citizen to advance the kingdom of Christ, not the other way around. Paul and Silas, they trust in Christ as their only security. Not circumstances, not position, not power. And we have to look at ourselves and ask, are there false securities in our lives? Are there any things that I have trusted in for my security that could be taken away in an instant, a job, my health, my possessions, my appearance, a cherished relationship, a political ideal? Those are not bad things in and of themselves, but they cannot sustain us because they're not designed to adequately replace the only true source of security, who is Jesus Christ, the only one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who promised never to leave us or forsake us. So are you the slave girl who needs deliverance? Are you the jailer who needs an earthquake? Are you like the slave owners and city officials who need a rebuke from God? Where do you find your true security? Yes, the Sunday school answer is the correct one. No matter what our situation, we can always find true security ever and only in Jesus because he is that one constant in an ever-changing world. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would always seek you as the ultimate source of our identity and our security, Lord, that we would see you above any other loyalties that we would have in life, Lord. And we pray that we would be able to lean on you, rely on you in these troubled times and in the whole year ahead, Lord, to know that you are the one who gives us our true security. We also, Lord, pray for our nation. We're deeply divided and deeply split, and it's a mess, Lord. I don't know how to untangle it, but I know you do. And so we just want to entrust our nation to you and ask, Lord, that you would help us to use our understanding as citizens of the kingdom in order to bring healing as citizens of this nation. And we thank you for that potential. Make this a year of healing, Lord. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.